1: I I used to joke that reading Olympic history, I would come across Brundage and be like, why haven't you died? What is happening?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, what an important figure in Olympic history. Um, And I wanted kids to understand and adults to understand the power of bad leadership, you know, Mm -hmm. another parallel to today's times.
1: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Ooh, I'm excited this week. We are talking to Andrew Marinus, who is a contributor to the ESPN's Undefeated, and he is the author of a new book called Games of Deception. And I I love this book. It's about the first basketball team which went to the Olympics. Guess what year they went? It was 1936. It was Hitler's Olympics. That's the first time there was Olympic basketball, and the story behind it will blow your mind. Also, I've got some choice words about the Washington Nationals, how shall I say, discordant White House celebration. I've got just stand up and just sit your ass down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Andrew Marinus. Um, I asked someone here in studio um, who's a real sports guy, like, when was the first... um, basketball tournament at the olympics and uh his guess was 52 okay so it's like people really do not know this history
2: which is amazing considering how much that 36 olympics has been studied (laughs) you know
1: I don't think it's mentioned in Jeremy Shap's terrific book about Jesse Owens in the 36 Olympics. I know it's not mentioned in the 36 Olympics documentary that's at the Holocaust Museum. I mean, so you do have like this incredibly picked over history, and yet this whole element of basketball is left out of it. Why, why do you think that's the case?
2: Uh, I think at the time, basketball was not uh, nearly the sport that it is now. You know, the famous crew competition with the boys in the boat um was taking place at exactly the same time as the gold medal game in basketball and nobody was watching the basketball game um and everybody was watching the crew competition and even on the radio with the worldwide coverage of the olympics on the radio they broadcast the the rowing competition Um, i think part of that was the just the worldwide uh, status of basketball but also it was raining And they were playing outside this basketball tournament. So even the spectators were few and far between at the first gold medal basketball game. Also, this was before um, the NCAA tournament, even this was before the NBA. So even in the U.S. where basketball was relatively popular, you know, I think it's hard for us to imagine just sort of the status that the sport, the low status the sport had at the time.
1: Now, it's such a great subject, like it's one of those things where why hasn't somebody written about this before, and I'm reading this thinking, why didn't I write about this <laughs> like so i I gotta ask the 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 green with envy question. How did you stumble upon this story?
2: Well, I was in Lawrence, Kansas um three years ago to speak at the Dole Institute for Politics about my last book, which was called Strong Inside it was a biography of Perry Wallace, who was the first African-American basketball player in the SEC. And while I was out there, just being a big basketball fan, I wanted to visit Allen Fieldhouse. because I'd never been there before. And so I took a tour of the Fieldhouse. It's amazing, they, isn't it? I've done that. Yeah, it's incredible. And the, the, the Hall of Fame that they have there is just as good as the Basement Hall of Fame. I mean, just the history of basketball at that school Um, But then attached to it, they have a new building called the DeBruce Center, where they have the James Naismith's original rules of basketball under glass, just like you might see the Constitution at archives in D.C. Um, And so I, I saw those original rules. And then adjacent to that, they had a picture of James Naismith, the inventor of basketball with a Japanese basketball player from during the 1930s and the. Curtis Marsh, who was showing me around, said, did you know that Naismith was able to travel to the Olympics to see his invention debut in the Olympics? And I had no idea of that. And I said, well, which Olympics was that? Because I didn't know yet at the time. And he said, well, it was the Nazi Olympics in 36. And as soon as he said that, and at that time I was looking for what my next book project was going to be. I said, well, that that would make an amazing story. Let me Google and see if there's already a book about this. And there is one book called Netting Out by Rich Hughes um, from Kansas City, Um, and he did a good job with it, but it wasn't the type of uh, narrative nonfiction that I write, and it wasn't geared towards young readers. Um, And I'm curious to ask your opinion of this book. You know, I've written it for high school and middle school kids, but I hope that adults will find it just, you know, up their alley too. Um, So I felt like there was room to tell a story that really wasn't out there yet, and that's how I stumbled upon it. Well, that gets
1: right to my next question. I mean, because what I kept thinking when I was reading it was, wow, you know, this is some very challenging subject matter to speak to a teen audience about. I mean, I speak to um, college students about stuff from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and and, you know, and and then there's not a lot of base knowledge about it. So explaining things... Like, so what was the Vietnam War? You know, that's something I have yeah, right. to do with 1920 year olds I mean, even what was the, the Gulf War? What was the Iraq War? So I wanted to ask you, um, what, what were the challenges of writing about the Holocaust for a young audience?
2: Right. Well, for the last two-plus years, I've been traveling around the country, mostly to middle schools, also to high schools, with a young reader's adaptation of Strong Inside. So I've been spending a lot of time um, with that age group, and one thing that I noticed was these kids, um, a lot of schools do history projects that are posters that are on the walls of the school when I walk in. And a lot of the kids have done their um, projects on James Naismith. So I knew that there would already be sort of this built-in um, interest in Naismith. Also, the Holocaust is covered um, in those years of school. And so this book, in some ways, is bringing together a couple of subjects that teachers are accustomed talking to their students about. Uh, Another thing I would say is that living in that world and then sort of contrasting it with the adult world that you're exposed to in these times. I mean, I'm really impressed with the, um, not just the smarts of the kids, but their interest in learning about um, diverse subjects, their interest in um, social change and equality and the um, diverse readers that they're reading and like you, I'm in a school and exposed to that and then I get on Twitter and see something that Trump has said and I'm like, I feel pretty good about these uh, generations coming who are so far um, advanced from a lot of the adult discourse these mm-hmm. days. So I didn't really worry too much about um, the subject matter. In some cases, you know, you might throw in a line or two that offers a little bit of backstory on a topic that adults might or you assume they already know what the Great Depression was, you know, or um, who Adolf Hitler was. And so there's a little bit of, of explanation on some subjects, but I don't really um, talk down to the age group. And that's the direction I got from my publisher was to re- uh, respect them and their knowledge. And so I enjoy writing uh, for that age. I actually got a backhanded compliment when I wrote Strong Inside when I was about to ad- adapt it for um, – middle school and high school kids, I thought I was going to have to rewrite every sentence. And the the editor said, oh, no, your writing style is just fine for 12-year-olds. <laughs> you know, so maybe the way I write for adults works for this age group, too. Just anyway.
1: Wow. You know, it's so funny <laughs> you mentioned Trump, because uh, at one point you have a—I loved it. It was, it was a scathing definition of nationalism as opposed <laughs> yes. to patriotism. And we, of course, have a president who calls himself a nationalist, openly— uh, yeah, th- that must have entered your mind as you were constructing a definition of nationalism for a young audience.
2: Absolutely, I think it was. I was actually writing that chapter at the time that Trump was pro- proudly proclaiming himself a nationalist. You know, and and there are no overt connections between the 30s and the and present day um, in the book necessarily, but reading between the lines, there certainly are. And also, I thought that Avery Brundage's character. Um, had some parallels to Trump also. And here was a guy that was um, uh, conspiring with another country to influence public opinion in the United States, uh, who was anti-Semitic and made really no bones about that, and also who had his own financial interest in the U.S. participating in these Olympics, because his construction firm was um, contracted to build a new German embassy in Washington, D.C. So his own selfish motivations, had enormous international um, implications.
1: Yeah, that, that part I did not know. As someone who's read a, a decent amount about Avery every Brundage, that was a hell of a nugget, the construction
2: uh, part of it. Thanks. Yeah, I spent some time at the um, Brundage archives at the University of Illinois and found a lot of interesting letters there where he's, you know, um, writing to Nazis, asking them to help him with public opinion in the United States. Well, That was um,
1: really interesting.
2: Yeah. um, And so I was surprised to find that Uh, the files were overflowing with anti-Semitic magazines and newsletters that he subscribed to at the time. You know, and I tried to be fair and say just because he subscribed to these doesn't mean he believed it. But then on the other hand, I found um, letters that he was writing back to people that wrote letters to him signed Heil Hitler, Heil Brundage. And he was complimenting them on their letters. So uh, so he was, um, you know, He was clearly anti-Semitic.
1: Well, you know, in the 60s, they called him Slavery Avery Brundage. So if (laughs) if your nickname is Slavery, you're probably doing some things wrong.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Here's a guy whose story intersects with Jim Thorpe and Adolf Hitler and Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Amazing.
1: and and all the way through in the 1970s in Munich and the lead up to the 76 Olympics. Like I I used to joke that reading Olympic history, I would come across Brundage and be like, why haven't you died? What is happening?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, what an important figure in Olympic history. Um, And I wanted kids to understand and adults to understand the power of bad leadership, you know, Mm -hmm. another parallel to today's times. And certainly he was just the, uh, he wasn't the president of the United States. He was an athletic official. So maybe he was bound to lower standards, but he certainly had lower standards.
1: Yeah. Now, um, I I don't want to give away too much in the book because it's such an interesting read, but I thought it was fascinating. I'm just going through some things I learned that, To understand how basketball became an Olympic sport, you also have to understand contact that took place between a hoops legend and a Nazi. Can you speak about that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so well, first of all, when James Naismith invented basketball, he really just saw it as a form of exercise. That was his motivation, was to keep students at the YMCA training school busy during the winter. They played football in the fall and baseball in the spring. And so he really just saw basketball as an activity um, for these kids. And Fog Allen, his protege, was the one that really envisioned basketball more in the modern sense as a spectator sport, a tournament sport um, that could make money. And so he was the visionary in that respect. Um, He was uh, a coach at a basketball clinic in Springfield, Massachusetts uh, one summer where one of the kids at the clinic – Was a German exchange student named Fritz Sawicki. And um, later in life, Sawicki became an official with the Nazi youth uh, in the Hitler, early years of the Hitler um, regime in Nazi Germany. And so Fog Allen was initially um, pitching Olympic officials in Los Angeles to try to get basketball included in the 32 Olympics as a medal sport or even um, an exhibition sport. And it was looked over even as an exhibition in favor of American football, which no other countries really played at the time. But the L.A. officials figured they could fill the Rose Bowl um, with a big crowd and make a lot of money on ticket sales. So while he was in L.A. Um, for those Olympics, Allen met with um, basketball officials from Japan um, and from Germany. Carl Deem, who was the leading um, amateur athletic official in Germany at the time. And the Japanese officials said, well, we're supposed to host the Olympics in 1940, so we can pretty much guarantee we'll get basketball there, um, but I'll help you lobby the Nazis uh, and the Germans to get it in the 36 Olympics. And so Fogg Allen also met with, with Deem in L.A. and was writing letters back and forth to him, was lobbying with Fritz Zwicky, uh, in the Hitler Youth. And so it was these German contacts, um, Nazi contacts that really came through for Fogg Allen. And Dean wrote um, Fogg a letter in 34 saying, you know, you've been successful. We're adding basketball uh, to the Olympics. And I think there were probably a couple of reasons in addition to his just personal connections and his years of, of lobbying. I think the, the Germans and the, the Nazis were really um, trying very hard to make sure that the United States did not boycott the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And so they added basketball. They even played a baseball exhibition game at the Olympic Stadium in front of 110,000 people. And I think they were throwing bones our way to add these popular American sports to their Olympics to help ensure our participation.
1: Now, you write about that, about the boycott movement against the 36 Olympics. And I wanted to ask your opinion. like w- Without the benefit of hindsight, um, what do you think the correct position of 1936 should have been? The correct political position is it you boycott because of what you're hearing about Nazi Germany, or you go Jesse Owens style and you show that white supremacy is a myth because you win four gold medals and spit in Hitler's eye? Like, what do you think yeah. going going into 36? Not I having the it, benefit of the hindsight. what do, What do you think is the correct position?
2: Yes, and it's so hard to answer without the knowledge that we have now of what, what followed. but um and you're right, Jesse Owens wanted to go to Berlin. Sam Balter, who was a Jewish member of the u s. basketball team, thought very carefully about it, and he went to berlin. he He did feel the best thing that he could do was to go and succeed in Hitler's face, you know, and win gold medal, which he did. Um, I think the important thing to remember is it really wasn't even a fair fight. Um, There were hundreds of thousands of people, you know, who I think 100,000 marched through the streets of New York uh, in protest of the Nazi regime. I think often we think, well, we didn't really know how bad things were Mm -hmm. at that time. You know, it was only years later. But there was a significant boycott movement. People were making all the right arguments about how can you go to this competition that's supposed to be about sportsmanship and fair play in this country that um, is about neither, you know, and there was quite a bit of persecution against not just Jews at the time, but uh, any political opponents of Hitler, uh, communists, you know, and so um, people did know about it. They were incredible um, columns in national newspapers, even college newspapers, Ohio State, Jesse Owens' own school said we should boycott the Olympics. The paper at UCLA, where a lot of the American basketball players were from, was in favor of a boycott. And yet you had Brundage that um, went on a supposed fact-finding mission to Berlin ahead of the Olympics and really just enjoyed whining and dining with his Nazi friends, um, who was asking Nazi officials to send positive publicity to American newspapers to offset the negative coverage of the Nazis at the time. And even the AAU um, board, which made the, the vote that really mattered about U.S. participation or not, um, had quite a few Nazi sympathizers uh, on the board. So it was a narrow vote. Public opinion was very narrow at the time. And I think if there had been an honest dialogue about it, we probably would have boycotted. And I think even with the benefit of hindsight, that would have been the correct decision. There was enough knowledge of what was happening there that that, that would have been a reasonable decision to come to. No, absolutely.
1: No, I agree with you about that. There was enough knowledge that people had to make a very different kind of decision about 1936.
2: And even, um, I should mention, the best college team in the country at that time was Long Island University, and they refused to play in the um, qualifying tournament uh, to determine the basketball team that year. It was determined not as individuals as we think of now, but teams played, and the best two teams um, in the qualifying tournament were combined to become the U.S. Olympic basketball team and the coach at liu was uh, a well-known figure in basketball claire b he had a handful of jewish players on his team it wasn't all jewish players but he held a vote with his team and he said if even one person um, does not feel comfortable with the idea of winning this tournament and representing the u.s in nazi germany we won't play in the qualifying tournament and i think seven hands went up uh, and so they they boycotted the tournament so there there again it, it shows there was enough knowledge of what was happening there were people Taking principled stance, uh, even the best college basketball team in the country.
1: Wow! Now this night you, you just uh, referenced it, but I just so folks know, and again I'm like trying to walk this line between not giving away too much that's in the book because I want people to read it. But this 1936 team, this pioneering Olympic team, like racially, socioeconomically, geographically, who was this team?
2: Yes. So I make a point in the book um, of comparing uh, some of the, um, the the racism in Germany and the racism in the United States at the time. Uh, there were no African-American players on this basketball team because they, their teams were not allowed to compete in the competition. Um, the, as I mentioned, there was one Jewish player on the team who came from an amateur team in Los Angeles from Hollywood, from Universal Pictures of all places. And so Uh, The best amateur teams in the country at that time were represented uh, YMCAs, colleges, and the AAU. And AAU at that time was different than we think of now with high school phenoms. It was um, basically sort of semi-pro teams. Uh, These were college graduates who without an NBA uh, or any sort of professional basketball really to play would uh, represent companies that sponsored amateur basketball teams as a way to promote their companies. And so they would get jobs that really just allowed them to play for the company basketball team in a lot of cases. And so the best two teams that emerged from that qualifying tournament, one was from Universal Pictures in Hollywood, where these guys worked as stagehands uh, on movies like Frankenstein and Dracula. And in fact, the, the creator of the team at Universal was Jack Pierce, who was the head uh, makeup man at Universal who actually created the iconic look for Frankenstein. Um, The other team was the McPherson Globe refiners from the middle of Kansas, McPherson, Kansas. Um, They had a player named Joe Fortenberry, who is considered the first player ever to dunk the basketball. Um, He actually probably was just the first player to dunk at Madison Square Garden. But New York media being what it is, they declared him the first player ever to dunk the basketball uh, Arthur Daly described his unusual motion as like a diner customer dunking a roll in coffee. And that's where that terminology
1: came it's from. So great.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I really loved um, learning about these teams. I spent time in McPherson where there's still a mural on a wall downtown celebrating their role in the 1936 Olympics. Uh, in a couple of weeks, one of my first book events will be at the museum in McPherson where I found a lot of photos um, uh, from these players that their families had donated. So it was fascinating to learn about these first Olympic basketball players who really no one's ever heard of before.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and you mentioned Sam Balter, uh, the first Jewish player who was on that team. Uh, what what do we know about him and any feelings he might've had about going or not going?
2: Yeah. So Sam's parents, um, were immigrants to the United States, um, from Belarus and they uh, first went to Detroit and then out to L.A. where his father became a contractor building houses. Um, Sam was a sports writer in high school and a great basketball player. He played at UCLA uh, and then joined the Universal's team. And when they won the qualifying tournament at Madison Square Garden, he was approached by a reporter immediately after the game and asked, are you going to Berlin? And that's when it really hit him that he had a big decision to make. And um, He asked for opinions from people that he respected, um, uh, Jewish uh, friends and rabbis and um, non-Jews, you know, just to sort of gain opinions about what the right decision would be. And he said that so many people were um, approaching it from a political standpoint, uh, as opposed to thinking about him as just an individual, Um, that eventually the arguments against going to Germany started to turn him off. Um and he was a basketball player at heart who had earned the right to go to the Olympics. And he said that he may have been rationalizing it for those reasons. But in the end he decided the best thing he could do would be to go to Berlin and compete well, win a gold medal, and that would be the best rebuke of Hitler. Um and so and also he was told by Avery Brundage and by others that, you know, this really wasn't Hitler's Olympics. These are the Olympics uh that just happened to be hosted in Germany this year. And so it won't be um, a political scene at all. And even on the boat to Germany, he realized that was that he had been sold uh, a lie there. When Brundage um, was disparaging the boycott movement to the athletes on the boat, uh, they arrive in Hamburg and there's a big Welcome to Germany sign that's flanked by an American flag and a Nazi flag. Um, when they arrive at the Olympic Village, they're greeted by... Um, Nazi soldiers who marched them to their dorms, and then in the dormitory there's Nazi literature on the coffee table, you know, um, and so immediately Walter realized this was the Nazi Olympics, and yet he even said that um, people were warm and welcoming in Berlin, he thought it was cool how many people lined the streets to welcome the team as they took a, boat, uh, a bus through town, um, and um, even after uh, he comes back to the United States and lives his life as a, a radio announcer of some acclaim, he, he always said this was the highlight of his life and that he understood in his obituary, someday it would say gold medal winning basketball player Sam Balter. He was proud of that uh, despite all that happened um, after those Olympics.
1: Amazing. You know, I, I really do appreciate your time. I, I one more question. I kept thinking because I was learning so much reading this book. What, what sticks with you as far as what you learned that you didn't know going in?
2: Um, well, I mean, it starts with the very basic. I didn't know this is where the basketball started. Um, I didn't know the level of coordination between Avery Brundage and German officials to influence public opinion in the U.S. I didn't know that the boycott movement was so close to succeeding. Even a couple years before the Olympics, I think nearly half of the American public mm-hmm. thought we should boycott the Olympics. And then there was a scene at the end of this that I tell at the end of the book that I thought was a really interesting full circle moment where after the Nuremberg trials, when uh, I think 11 Nazis uh, were to be hung in Nuremberg for their crimes against humanity, that those hangings took place of all places on a basketball court where the American guards at the at Nuremberg Palace of Justice every other day would play their, their basketball games. But on this day, they hung the Nazis. Um, and so that made an interesting uh, chapter towards the end. So I was I always approach my Uh, stories—this is advice that I got from my father, who's an author, to not be surprised by anything, to be open to anything you learn. But there were a ton of surprises for me um, throughout the year and a half that I was working on this book.
1: Imagine someone telling James Naismith in 1891, hey, you're not going to believe what's going to happen on one of these basketball courts in 50 years.
2: Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) And it's pretty remarkable that he he was there for those Olympics. So um, yeah, the Naismith stuff was fantastic. (laughs) I really love that
1: Naismith ball basketball. Right, that that was the first
2: idea, (laughs) and he was uh, luckily he wasn't uh, had didn't have a big enough ego to agree to that name.
1: (laughs) And I just got to give you a lot of credit. Like that's something I'm teaching this sports history class. My students ask me they they ask me how did basketball then go from Springfield, Massachusetts YMCA 1891 to becoming so popular and so international within a couple of decades. And I thought you just had the greatest explanation for that. Cause that's so, always been confusing to me too.
2: Yeah. And it, so, was,
1: it was really good.
2: So the school in Springfield where Naismith invented the game was called the international YMCA training school. And it was training people from all over the world to go back to their countries or Americans and Canadians to sort of evangelize around the world. Um, in establishing YMCA's and to be directors at Y's. And so they left that school with this knowledge of this new game. There was also a, a newsletter um, created by that school called The Triangle, which I just think is a cool nugget. Also, every Y that we all see in the country has a, a triangle and their logo. Right. And so that mm-hmm. was started even back then. There's this newsletter uh, listed the rules of basketball and that was sent all over the world also. Then in World War I, American soldiers took the game with them to Europe and there was a, a sort of a mini Olympics held among the Allies there where basketball was played. And so even at that age, without the internet, you know, without uh, TV and other quick ways of spreading the word, it, it got out there extremely quickly with these people leaving Springfield uh, with knowledge of this fun new game.
1: Amazing. You know, one of the things I always ask authors is what uh, music they were listening to. Uh, as they were preparing the book. So that'll be my last question for you. Did you have any inspirational soundtrack that got you through?
2: (laughs) That's a great question. Well, I have a better answer from my last book about Perry Wallace, which took place mostly in the sixties. I always had my radio in the car turned to a 1960s channel, so I could just be listening to the same music as the characters in my book. Um, with this one, I wasn't really into 1930s music. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I wasn't doing that. But my kids, uh, I drive them to school every morning. My daughter loves Flo Rida. So I guess I'll go with Flo Rida was a song I was, or an artist that I was listening to a lot um, as I was writing this book.
1: You know, you put his name together <laughs> and it's Florida. I don't know if you knew
2: that. <laughs> you know, yeah, I had to teach my daughter that. And <laughs> so when we went to um, Disney... A couple years ago, she's like, "Will Florida be there at Disney?" And I said, "I don't think so." But we actually um, tweeted a little video of her asking him to come meet us at Disney World. Um, but you know, didn't happen. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> so close. Yeah, so close. Maybe next time.
1: <laughs> hey, a- Andrew Marinus. First of all, thank you so much for writing the book. Uh, the book is Games of Deception. I absolutely could not recommend it higher. It was so fantastic. And thanks so much for being on the podcast.
2: Well, that means a lot, Dave. I admire the work that you do. It's so important. And uh, to be on your show is a real honor. Thank you. I
1: appreciate it. All right. Be well.
2: All right, Dave. You too. Have a great day.
1: We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from mybookie.ag. Okay, look, are you the type of fan that knows football so well that you could choose any game and call it? Well, MyBookie is the place for you because they let you turn all your sports knowledge into cash in your wallet. Between football season, NBA, and the start of the college basketball season, it's time to get off the sideline and get into the action with MyBookie. If you're the kind of person who likes to bet a little to win a lot, try a parlay. For instance, if you like a couple of the big favorites this week, parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout. So if you're going to bet this season, do the smart thing and go to MyBookie.com. A-G, because no one gives you more ways to win. If you join right now, MyBookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000. That means if you deposit $2,000, you get an extra $1,000 in free money to play with. Damn. Just use the promo code EOS to activate this offer. Once again, that's the promo code EOS to take advantage of MyBookie's generous sign-up offer. Visit MyBookie.a-g today. You play, you win, you get paid. Now let's go back to the podcast. We are back on the Edge of Swords podcast. Okay, look, I got some choice words, and especially after last week's show, I'm dying to get them out. Members of the Washington Nationals, in case you didn't hear, went to the White House to celebrate their World Series victory, and a MAGA rally broke out. In the normally apolitical post-win ceremony, Mr. National Ryan Zimmerman... Spoke directly to Trump in his remarks, saying, We'd also like to thank you for keeping everyone safe in our country and continuing to make America the greatest country to live in the world. But even that bit of treacle was dwarfed by catcher Kurt Suzuki's whipping out and donning a MAGA hat as Trump bizarrely embraced him from behind, his hands cupping Suzuki's bosom. When asked about his MAGA move, Suzuki texted USA Today Sports and said, Just trying to have some fun. Everybody makes everything political." And Christine Brennan, the great columnist for USA Today, wrote in response, "...of course Suzuki was the one who made this political, not the people who looked on shocked." So why was this all so tin-eared? First and foremost, the Nationals don't exactly represent MAGA country. Their fans, as we talked about last week, booed Donald Trump during Game 5 of the World Series. Those boos and the subsequent booing Trump received at an ultimate fighting championship event in New York City over the weekend has sent Trump into such a tailspin of neediness that he will be attending his third sporting event in the last two weeks uh, in Alabama. That's where we're recording this right before that game is about to take place, with the hope of finally finding a sports audience that doesn't find him odious. The actions of Suzuki also felt like a rebuke of his friend Sean Doolittle, who refused to attend the White House celebration, saying about Trump to the Washington Post, I don't want to hang out with somebody who talks like that. There are a lot of things, policies, that I disagree with, but at the end of the day it has more to do with the divisive rhetoric and the enabling of conspiracy theories and widening the divide in this country. My wife and I stand for inclusion and acceptance, and we've done work with refugees, people that come from you know. The shithole countries. That last statement, of course, was a reference to Trump's racist description of Haiti, El Salvador, and African nations in January 2018. Even if Doolittle was the furthest person from Suzuki's mind, the catcher should have at least been self aware enough to see how his old friend and the DC masses who supported Doolittle's principled stance would take his actions. Now, while Doolittle received the lion's share of attention for declining the White House's invitation, seven other nationals joined him in staying home, including superstar third baseman Anthony Rendon, Joe Ross, Javi Guerra, Wander Suero, Victor Robles, and Michael Taylor, and also second baseman Wilmer Diefo. This is also a moment to remember that anyone looking for some kind of athletic resistance to the current administration from the world of baseball particularly the white world of baseball, will be left wanting. This is very conservative terrain and always has been. The game cleanses itself and its history with progressive players like Jackie Robinson and Roberto Clemente. But the heroes who stood up to their bosses in addition to speaking up about politics, like Kurt Flood, have been ostracized. It speaks volumes that Flood and union leader Marvin Miller whose fight for free agency changed the game, are not in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, but that the commissioner who Miller dominated in every negotiation, Bowie Kuhn, is enshrined in Cooperstown. Many Nationals fans said on social media that the team's embrace of Trump after their stadium's sonorous rejection of the president diminishes their World Series win. I would argue that the players have the right to their politics no matter how discordant with the community in which they play. But we should thank our lucky stars for Sean Doolittle, Anthony Rendon, and the others who stayed away. In the context of baseball, that's a regular insurgency. But because a win is a win, and sometimes we need a win, Washington Nationals will always be the 2019 World Series champions, and not even Trump can ruin that. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Mary Kane. And if you didn't read her story or see her video op-ed in the New York Times this week, you really need to do so. As the New York Times wrote, At 17, Mary Kane was already a record-breaking phenom the fastest girl in a generation, and the youngest American track and field athlete to make a world championships team. In 2013, she was signed by the best track team in the world, Nike's Oregon Project, run by its star coach, Alberto Salazar. Now, instead of becoming a symbol of the girls' unlimited potential in sports, Kane became yet another standout young athlete who got beaten down by a win-at-all-cost culture. Girls like Kane become damaged goods and fade away. We rarely hear what happened to them. We move on. End quote. But we are now hearing what happened to Mary Kane. She's coming forward about the absolute horror show that exists at the Nike program, including stories of crash dieting and harassment and an absolute nightmare scenario that it seems that girls are subject to at the Nike program that young male athletes are not. It's absolutely brutal, Uh, and I could give a Just Sit Your Ass Down award to Nike, who's already come forward with victim-blaming about Mary Kane, saying, well, she didn't complain when she was here. She's only complaining now that she's done with the program. Seriously, Nike, go sit your ass down. I mean, this is terrific, brave stuff. Uh, We'll put a link out about this at the Edge of Sports Twitter feed, at Edge of Sports if you want to check it out, Mary Kane's video op-ed, and the accompanying uh, written op-ed as well that goes with it in the New York Times it's absolutely bracing very important stuff so congratulations just stand up award goes to Mary Kane the just sit your ass down award sit your ass down I said it could go to Nike but frankly it can go to Nike every week so instead I want to give it to Kurt Suzuki Ryan Zimmerman who else would I give it to my goodness how you embracing Donald Trump in this community after we booed his ass right out of town my goodness, Kurt Suzuki, sit your ass down, and you could join Ryan Zimmerman with you. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Andrew Marinus for the interview. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can always go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod Every bit of support makes a huge difference in terms of doing what we want to do. Um, Thank you to everybody who chimed in about last week's show and enjoyed themselves. If you have any thoughts about who should get the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, you could always email me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at gmail.com. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.